Hey there, this is Jan Adkins, the Explainer General for the Nonfiction Minute Podcast. Glorioski, we're beating the big drum for women in history this month, and today's nonfiction lineup is loud and strong. First, we have our pal Susanna Reich describing one of the heroines of women's votes, suffragist Carrie Chapman Catt. This is Susanna Reich for the Nonfiction Minute. History happens everywhere. History happens everywhere, even your own backyard. Have you ever heard of Carrie Chapman Catt? From 1919 to 1928, Carrie lived in a house near mine called Juniper Ledge. She was a suffragist, one of many who fought for women's right to vote. Without her, the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which gave women the vote, might never have been approved. Born in 1859 and raised in Iowa, Carrie got an early lesson in politics when she asked why her mother wasn't voting in the 1872 presidential election. Everyone laughed, but not Carrie. She thought it unfair that women couldn't vote and wasn't afraid to say so. In college, Carrie joined a literary society. Women were forbidden from speaking during meetings. After Carrie spoke at a debate, the rules were changed to allow women's participation. A woman of many firsts, Carrie worked as a teacher after graduation and became one of the first female school superintendents in the country. After marrying, she moved to San Francisco. When her husband died, she supported herself by working as that city's first female newspaper reporter. Back in Iowa, Carrie joined the Iowa Woman Suffrage Association, part of the National American Woman Suffrage Association, NASA, led by Susan B. Anthony. Carrie's rousing speeches brought her national attention. When Susan retired, Carrie became NASA's president, leading suffrage campaigns all over the country and supervising a million volunteers. Carrie's winning plan for the vote worked on both state and federal levels. She supported President Woodrow Wilson's efforts in World War I, even though she was a peace activist. She knew if Wilson backed women's suffrage, Congress would vote for it, and that's exactly what happened. Carrie's activism didn't stop at the U.S. border. As founder and president of the International Women's Suffrage Alliance, she advocated for democracy and women's rights on four continents. She also founded the League of Women Voters to educate women on political issues, worked for world peace, and campaigned against child labor and Hitler's treatment of Jews. When the 19th Amendment was approved in 1920, Carrie was living at Juniper Ledge. There she nailed plaques to trees in honor of women who fought for the vote. Juniper Ledge still stands right down the street from the park where today kids play ball. Who knows what other people, places, and stories from the past they may find in the neighborhood. Amy Nathan loves regular folks doing extraordinary things. And she's going to tell us about a very exclusive club, the Caterpillar Club. Hello, my name is Amy Nathan. 
I'm going to be sharing a story with you today that's partly about science and partly about history. It's kind of a surprising story that I learned about when I was doing research for a book I wrote about World War II. The title of the story is Caterpillars to the Rescue. I learned about the Caterpillar Club when I interviewed some flying wasps. Not the kind that buzz around on tiny wings. These wasps were airplane pilots, the first women to fly for the United States military. They served during World War II, the Women Air Force Service Pilots, or WASP for short. The caterpillar club they told me about was named for silkworm caterpillars that helped save pilots' lives. If a plane developed engine trouble in mid-air, pilots could float to safety by using a parachute made from silk, a lightweight cloth that silkworm caterpillars help create. These caterpillars use a spit-like substance in their mouths to spin out a long silk thread that they wrap around themselves, forming a cocoon that they live in for several weeks until they become moths. Those long silk threads can then be unwound from the cocoons and woven together to make silk cloth. About 20 years before World War II, a parachute company started the Caterpillar Club for people whose lives were saved by using a parachute to escape from a disabled plane. People could write to the company about their parachute rescue, pay a membership fee, and the company would send them a little caterpillar pin. However, the WASP pilots I spoke with said that some pilots liked to feel they were part of the Caterpillar Club, even if it wasn't an aircraft's fault that led them to use a parachute. During World War II, pilots, both men and women, trained to fly military aircraft for the Army in small, open planes. The planes didn't have a roof. If a nervous pilot in training forgot to buckle the seatbelt and the plane tipped over, the pilot could fall out. Fortunately, they always wore a parachute. Landing safely, thanks to the parachute, not only let them feel part of the Caterpillar Club, but also helped the students remember to never, ever forget to buckle up again. However, by World War II, many parachutes used by U.S. pilots weren't made of silk. The silk-producing areas of the world were controlled then by Japan, which the U.S. was fighting in this war. Because U.S. companies could no longer get silk cloth, they began making parachutes from a new material scientists had just invented, nylon. Most parachutes are made of nylon today. Even so, the Caterpillar Club lives on. Vicki Cobb will explain to us just why Marie Curie was the elite player in the science game. Here's a nonfiction minute as part of Women's History Month. This is Vicki Cobb. In October 1891, 23-year-old Manya Sklodowska 
arrived in Paris to attend the Sorbonne, France's great university. She had saved money working as a governess to get there. She was determined to make the most of her studies in science and math. Right away, she was noticed, partly because she was Polish, although she had changed her first name to a French version, Marie, to fit in better. She always sat in the front row of all her classes because her French was not yet fluent and she didn't want to miss anything. She also was one of only a few female students. In a university full of smart people, she worked hard to excel. She ultimately finished first in her class and went on to make major scientific discoveries. What made Marie so single-minded and determined? Behind it all was a great love for science, a love she shared with her husband, Pierre Curie, whom she met in 1894. At that time, science was uncovering unimaginable truths in chemistry and physics. New discoveries were being made at a breathtaking pace. Science was like a game, and it attracted many players. Why? One, there was a Nobel Prize for winners, those who discovered a big idea about the natural world. There was only one nature to discover, but people came at it from many directions. Two, it was collaborative. Scientists shared their discoveries by publishing papers. Three, it was competitive. The papers described procedures so that scientists could check each other's work. It kept everyone honest. The best work got the most attention. Four, the discoveries could be applied to solve problems for people. X-rays, light bulbs, phonographs, photographs, movies, and telephones would not have been possible without science. Five, the biggest prize was the idea of the atom and its structure. Many scientists contributed to modern atomic theory, including Marie. Marie Curie won the Nobel Prize twice for her work. At a time when women didn't even have the right to vote, she was a working mother of two daughters, a single mother after she was widowed in 1906, the founder of the Radium Institute for Research, and she brought the X-ray to the battlefield in World War I. She believed that science could save the world, that scientific discoveries belonged to everyone, and she refused to benefit financially from her discoveries. She lived by the highest principles of honesty and integrity. She was a true champion of the science game. One of our great artists and storytellers is dear Roxy Monroe. And she is going to describe for us that traveler, explorer, lecturer, and crocodile whacker, Mary Kingsley. Mary Kingsley by Roxy Monroe. It is at these times you realize the blessing of a good thick skirt, said Mary Kingsley, after she crashed into a cleverly concealed leopard pit lined with 12-inch ivory spikes. The year was 1895, the place equatorial West Africa, and this monkey lady saved, thanks to her observance to the dress code of the day, 
was a young English woman collecting species of fish and beetles for the British Museum. Mary Kingsley was the daughter of a physician who spent most of his time traveling. Although she received no formal education reserved for her brother Charles, Mary learned to read, becoming fascinated with subjects such as science, exploration, and piracy. At one point, she was granted permission to teach herself German, but only after she could iron a shirt properly. Mary learned chemistry, experimented with gunpowder and electricity, and became engrossed with the intricacies of plumbing. After years of caring for her invalid mother, in 1892, both her parents died. With a small inheritance left to her came the fulfillment of a dream, to explore West Africa. When Mary crashed into the leopard pit, she was traveling in what was then the French Congo, getting to know the Fangs, reportedly a tribe of cannibals. Traveling by canoe, she was once marooned in a crocodile-infested lagoon. When one tried to climb aboard, she was there with a paddle, ready to fetch him a clip on the snout. After two trips, she wrote a book called Travels in West Africa. She became a sought-after lecturer and celebrity. In public appearances, she was both funny and serious, peppering her narrative with jokes, often at her own expense, but also being critical of the way the British had steamrolled into the African continent with little regard for its ancient cultures. In 1900, she sailed to Africa for the third time, responding to an urgent call for nurses in South Africa, where war was underway. Assigned to a hospital where hundreds of soldiers were dying from a raging epidemic, she became ill herself and died two months later. She was buried at sea with military honor. In her book, she remembers, Indeed, as much as I have enjoyed life in Africa, I do not think I ever enjoyed it to the full as I did when dropping down the Rembwe. Ah me, give me a West African river and a canoe for sheer pleasure. That's a wrap for today's podcast about powerful women in our history. This is Jan Atkins for the Nonfiction Minute podcast. We're out of here.